So, we are looking this week at chapter 3. There's a lot in this chapter. There's a page and a half here on your sheet, front and back. And so, we'll see how far we get. If we need to, we'll get it. Oh, I'm sorry. They are on the back table. Um, so, they, we'll see how far we get. If we need to, we can keep going in the chapter next Sunday morning. So, the primary point of this chapter is sin corrupts the dynamic functions of the heart. These aspects of the heart are all moral by nature. Dysfunction occurs when a heart's worship design is directed away from God and towards self. And so, we're going to talk more about this as we progress through the lesson. Sometimes we think about sin as just something that we do. But sin is also something that corrupts all of who we are. It's not just like we do bad stuff, but we think right things and we want right things. We think sinful things and we want sinful things and then we do sinful things and so it's all kind of wrapped up together. Uh, look at Genesis 3, if you would. Genesis 3. Someone want to read verses 1 through 7 for us? Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Jonathan, thank you. So, what does Satan attack first? What God said? In what she thinks, what God said. Those two things closely connected. God makes, God's word is uh, both the Bible and Christ, and specific statements that God has made. And Satan said, this particular thing that God said, that's not really true, is it? That's the first thing he does to attack her and lead her into temptation. Look at verse 6. What happens otherwise? What's the next thing that kind of happens in her inner person, in her heart? It looked good. It's, it's good for food. That's an assessment of it's not bad, it's good to eat, right? It's a delight to the eyes. It looks good. I want it. And it can do something for me. The tree was desirable to make one wise. And all those things are wrapped up together. It's not just, now I think I should. it's okay to do it. It's, I think it looks good. 
probably not going to do anything bad to me, and it will get something good for me. And so all those things are wrapped up together. And then we have the action at the end of verse 6. She took from its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And so, again, we would have to say, which parts of what we've seen in this story in verse 1, 1 and 2, and verse 6, which parts of those are sin? All of it. Yeah. When I say God has said blank, but I'm going to think this instead. When I say God says I shouldn't want this, even if it looks good, God said I shouldn't want this, and I want it, that's sin too. And then the outward evidence of it was the eating. But they were sinning before they got to the eating, right? And so that's an important point for us to recognize. Satan called in a question Eve's knowledge of God's words. A new desire accompanied her vision of the fruit. These strong new desires led to a discreet or a, a specific choice. The effects of the sin were dynamic. Adam's report to God captures per- perfectly the corruption of their thinking, feelings, and choices. Look at Genesis 3, verse 10. Someone read that for us, please, either from your sheet or from your Bible. No, that's 10. Yep. So, I heard the sound of you in the garden. What's that? What's going on in that part of it? Well, right. God's coming in. But from what part of Adam is getting at, I heard the sound? Okay, so our senses. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not, not the guilt part of it, although that comes later. It's not being clear on the question. So, the senses, that's something that our mind appreciates or captures, right? So I heard something. Then, I was afraid. There's a feeling, but the feeling is tied to the knowledge both of what he's done and what God had said and what's going on right this minute. And it's flowing out of his desire to, like any of us when we get caught, not to be in trouble, right? So he's afraid. And then that leads to the action. I hid myself. So all these things, again, are wrapped up together. The Bible constructs a complex view of sin with many shades of meaning. Sin begins with failure to believe God, to trust His words as true and good. Can you think of a time when you've been tempted and there was no part at all of, you know, God said this, but I don't really believe it. I mean, every time we sin, that's what's going on in our hearts, right? God said this, but I know better. God said this, but I really want it. God said this, but maybe this is the exception, right? That's what tends to go on in our, in our hearts, even if we don't think about it quite that step-by-step um, step in our progress in temptation. That's kind of what's going on in our hearts. Scripture consistently displays sin as dynamic. Cain did not merely murder Abel, but Cain allowed his internal desire to provoke jealously enraged action, resulting in a fearful engagement with God that drove him east of Eden. Uh, notice the things that God says. We're right there, so we can look there at chapter 4. Notice the things God says to Cain. 
First, Cain did something. Verse 3 of chapter 4 of Genesis there. What did Cain bring? Brought an offering. What kind of offering? Fruit of the ground, okay? What was God's attitude toward it in verse 5? No regard for it. Didn't like it. Wasn't acceptable. What's Cain's response? Anger. Why was Cain angry? Did God have the right to say what kind of sacrifice he did and didn't want? Yeah. Um, had this conversation with my children. Do dad... Not about bringing offerings, since we don't do that, but... Do dad and mom have the right to say this is the way it should be? Even if you think it's dumb and you know better and you can't see how it would possibly work, do they have the right to say this is the way we're going to do it? Yes. We, we have the right to do it. Yeah. And kids tend to be like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it my way. Right. And then we think about that for a second and we say, you know what? That's exactly how we act toward God. Cain was saying, God, you don't have the right to say what I did wasn't good enough. I'm upset about this. So God warns him in verse 6. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Did God need to ask that question for God's benefit? No, it's for Cain's benefit. If you do well, will your countenance not be lifted up? You do not do well. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. Now, there's a sense in which the anger was already a sinful response. But God also knew the sin that Cain was about to commit and said, sin's going to master you and overpower you and overrule you, and there's going to be even worse consequences if you give in to that next sin that you're being tempted toward. And then that first, the next thing, Cain told Abel his brother. It's a phrase I didn't think about the last time we were going through this. What do you think he told him? Doesn't say. We could speculate what it was that he said. Maybe he spoke God's words to him. Maybe he told him what God said, but he said, but, but he should have accepted what... I, we don't know. But we do know what he did in the end of verse 8. He rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Maybe Abel said something. The text doesn't say. Maybe the fact that Cain was still angry and he just kept looking at his brother and he just kept getting more and more angry. It doesn't say. But all of these things are a evidence of the corruption of sin working itself out in all the parts of Cain's heart leading him to do this terrible action of murdering his brother and leading him, verse 11, to the consequence of being cursed from the ground. His life was wrapped up in cultivating the ground and God said it will never grow another thing for you. And so the thing that he loved, the fruit of his hands, the fruit of the ground, his thing that was more important to him than pleasing God, became something that was denied to him for the rest of his life. So, the next part of this uh, paragraph. Aaron did not merely craft a golden calf. It didn't just happen. He said to Moses... There was the gold and there was the fire and out popped the calf. 
few verses before that, what did it say about Aaron's role in that incident? Who made the calf? Aaron. It says he took a tool, right, and shaped it. What happened before he shaped the gold? He asked the people for the gold. What happened before that? What did the people tell Aaron? Where's Moses? We don't know what happened to your brother. It's your turn. Give us something we can follow. So Aaron lets his fear of the people, his faltering, his wavering belief in an unseen God to lead him to this sin. If Aaron had said, you know what? I haven't seen him either, but God's been leading us so far, we can wait a few more days. That whole thing never would have happened. If he had said, you know what, what you are asking is wrong because we don't need a God that we can see all the time right in front of us to lead us. God has been taking care of us when we could see him, when we couldn't see him. It never would have happened. But Aaron let his fear of the people lead him into sin. What about Saul? Saul did not merely kill everyone in his path in an attempt to end David's life. He did so out of a pattern of burning jealousy for his own glory over God's. Flip over to 1 Samuel 22. Just to, to glance at this, because it ties in what we've been going through in the Psalms. Uh, someone read 1 Samuel 22, 13, if you would. Thank you. Okay. So, what's going on in Saul's heart in his question to this priest who has helped David? Yeah. What else? Why was David running away from Saul? Saul was trying to kill him. Who was the reason for this whole circumstance? Saul was. Who did Saul blame for the circumstance? David, God, everybody else. Samuel, yeah. I mean, he, it leads him to do things that apparently make no sense, but they do make sense when we think about what the Bible says with regard to his motives and his desires and all of those sorts of things. Sometimes we or other people or things we hear in the news, stuff will happen and we say, how in the world could that possibly happen? That seems crazy. But if we back up for a second and we think about the steps that led to that incident, there's a series of sinful thoughts and desires and choices that lead to that point of the thing that makes no sense to us. And this is part of the corrupting influence of sin. Uh, he points out, people do not sin one-dimensionally, but three-dimensionally. Their sin was as dynamic as their internal design. It's a bunch of verses here from Romans and other examples from Paul's letters. 
But let's look at Romans 1 for a moment, because this one, I think, describes the progression well. And then we'll probably glance at a few of the other passages, too. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 1. So we're familiar with Romans 1.18 says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. So what's the first thing that Paul's dealing with in Romans 1? Is it knowledge? Is it desire? Is it action? knowledge. God made it known to them. They saw it. What was their response to God's eternal power and divine nature in verse 20? Verse 21, what's their response? Yeah. Yeah. Their heart was darkened, right? Now, this seems to be putting it the other direction because it starts out with the action. But for them to get at the point of saying, I'm not going to honor God as God, there's things happening that lead up to that action. And then Paul is saying, then that leads to further action, further corruption of their thinking and their desires. Because they wanted to reject God... Notice what happens to them in verses 22 and 23. We tend to focus on what happens a little bit later in the chapter, but what he said in verse, says in verses 22 and 23 is, is important for us to consider. It's going to come up again later when we talk a little bit more about this idea of idolatry. They wanted to be wise. They said, we're wise. What were they really? Fools. So there's an irony there. And when you reject God who made everything as the Creator, in verse 23, what do you end up worshiping? The creation. They went from worshiping the God who made bugs and snakes and water and earth and the sun to worshiping all those things. Think about Egypt, right? God rebukes the people of Egypt by showing that their gods are powerless and that he's the one who's in charge, not those gods. Think about the ninth plague. Why is there darkness over the faiths of the land? What did the Egyptians worship as their chief god? The sun. God said, your greatest god is nothing. I can blind him whenever I choose because I made the sun, which you falsely worship as a god. And then the last plague... God has the power over life and death. They pleaded with their gods. They sacrificed to their gods. They worshiped their gods, expecting that their gods could give them life and health and fertility. And God wiped out the firstborn of every family in Egypt. So, if we reject God and cease to look upward, our only alternative is to look around us and to look down. Because as we'll talk more in a moment, our hearts are designed to worship. When that worship is corrupted, it doesn't stop happening. It worships the wrong things. So, 
then that leads to the actions that we're familiar with at the end of chapter 24 and following. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. What's he talking about there? Thinking, desires, or choices. It started it, but in that specific verse, the lusts of their hearts, what are we talking about? Desires, primarily, right? The lusts of their hearts to do the action of impurity with the result that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was blessed forever. So, um, we don't need to go down through the rest of the chapter. You're familiar with it. But the bottom line is, the reason all those sins take place, sins which we tend to highlight, the sins of a sexual nature, but it also includes such things in the list as being boastful, being disobedient to parents, having no mercy. So this list shouldn't just be like, yeah, those are for the really bad people. This list ought to stir our consciences as well. But the reason that those actions take place is because there's a corruption of the mind, a corruption of the desires, and a corruption of the actions all wrapped up together because there is a corruption of worship. So... There are some other examples of sin's effect on the mind. For example, uh, Romans 10 and verse 3, Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This is Paul speaking of the Jews. There's an issue with their knowledge. There's a, a sinful corruption of their mind. Um, there's also the reality of corruption of the desires. Romans 6, verse 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's also an effect on the actions. Uh, Romans 8, 7, and 8, The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That has both the idea of the thinking and the desires, but leading to the actions. There are many other examples from these passages. For sake of time, I'll encourage you to look at some of those on your own later. Look at the top of the second column. As John Frame describes, the fall was not essentially a derangement of faculties within man. It was rebellion of the whole person, intellect as much as emotions, perception, and will, against God. My problem is not something within me, it is me. Now, Paul will talk about the sin nature. Paul will talk about the old man and the new man. The thing I think that Frame's trying to highlight in this quote is this. Sometimes we view sin as something external because if we view it as something external to us, it just happened, then I'm not responsible for it. But when we come to terms with the fact that even as a Christian, I know God and I profess to love God and God said He hates this thing, this thought, this want, but I'm going to embrace it and love it anyway, 
and it's not something outside of me that's making it happen, it's me choosing to do that, we start to say, we got to do something about that. So, last week we talked about this metaphor of the thawing mountain ice. Remember? We had the picture of the mountain, the sun warms it, the water flows down into the river. How many of you have ever read Rudyard Kipling? Or heard any of Rudyard Kipling's stuff? He, um, he wrote stories like How the Elephant Got Its Trunk. When I was a little kid, um, I thought that was a funny story. Uh, not a true story, but one of these stories where you attempt to capture an explanation of how things are the way that they are. And in this story, the main point of the story was how the elephant got his trunk. But the thing that stuck out to me, there's this one phrase in the story that keeps getting repeated. It describes the river where the elephant goes down and meets the crocodile. And the crocodile lives in sort of a swampy kind of a river, and it calls it the Great Gray Greasy Green Limpopo River or something like that. So that stuck out in my mind. How many of you have seen a swamp where an alligator or a crocodile is just sitting there floating? Clear like a swimming pool, right? No. Even though it is not polluted, perhaps, in an ecological sense, it is polluted in the sense of, like, I wouldn't go swimming there. There's unseen dangers lurking in the depths. There's, it's slimy. There's, like, leeches and all sorts of other things that I want to stick my arm in it because it's going to come out and it's just going to be covered in muck. The image that we have here is that. But if it's frozen in these ice caps on the top of the mountain, that's the sin that's within us. And then the sun warms it, and then all that muck and disgusting stuff starts trickling down, oozing down the side of the mountain. That's the picture that we're trying to see here. The ice caps are not clean and white, but streaked with a foul green. When warming conditions arise, the suspended pollution becomes active people's understanding of a situation, their feelings toward it, their choices in it will reveal what is unhealthy in their beliefs, desires, and commitments. What were the warming conditions that we talked about? Yeah, just stuff that happens in life. It provokes a response, and that response reveals something about what we think, what we want, what we've committed to do. Sometimes, he says, the word idolatry is used so often that it can become a catch-all label for anything going wrong in a person's heart. The problem is that this, the, he says, the problem is not that we have a concept of idolatry. The problem is that so often people think of idolatry as a specific conscious choice rather than a wholehearted inclination. What I mean by that is, he gives the illustration of someone who is enslaved to alcohol, who lives a life of drunkenness. It would be possible for someone to come alongside that first person and say, alcohol is your idol, stop loving that idol, stop getting drunk. But there are a lot of things going on in that. Look at this first point here. Number one, idolatry is dynamic self-worship. Why did the Israelites worship idols? Look at the thing he says here. The Israelites believed that commitment to this God through various prescribed rituals 
would give them their heart's desires, fertility, safety, and abundance. All these promises came without having to deal with a much harder to please God who exists outside the Israelites' imagination and gives clear evidence he could not be contained, cowed, or manipulated into giving them what they wanted. In that sense, they were worshiping themselves over and against their Creator. Oftentimes, we look at idolatry and we're like, why in the world would someone bow down to a stick? Because that just seems stupid to us. Right. But were they worshiping the stick because it was a stick? They were worshiping it because it stood for something, and they were worshiping what it stood for because they thought that thing would give them what they wanted. So when they worshipped Asherah, trees, groves of trees, cut to female fertility images in the land of Canaan, they weren't worshipping ultimately that tree. They were worshipping the thing that stood behind that image, this concept of a goddess. And they were worshipping that goddess because they thought that that goddess would give them children and happiness and all of those sorts of things. And as he pointed out just then, in an easier way than God that said, if you're unclean, do this washing. If you sin, do this sacrifice. If you gain wealth, you owe part of it to me. That's a lot of work, right? All this goddess says is, do the things that you already want to do, and you'll get the things that you want more of. That sounds like a win-win, right? And in the same sense, someone who has given over their lives to drinking alcohol or some other sort of addiction, they are not ultimately... Their, their God is not ultimately that bottle, that can, that whatever it is, that keg, right? Their idol is what participation in this activity will gain for me. What are some of the things that giving yourself over to alcohol in various situations could provide for you? Numbness? So an escape, because life is hard, maybe. What else? Okay. Getting away from problems. What else? Okay. There's like a social aspect to it. I will feel accepted and welcomed and part of a community and have fellowship with people if I participate in this activity. Okay. It's going to, I don't have the confidence to do what I need to do, but if I do this, then I will, and I'll have success. So as we think about it in that, those terms... We see that it's more complicated than just, I'm doing this thing. And it's more complicated than just saying, stop doing this thing. And the person may not always be aware of the reason that they're doing the thing. So I'm not saying we should come there, either with ourselves or someone else, and just sort of beat them over the head. Why are you doing this? 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 Because sometimes we sin, and we've been sinning in a particular way for so long or there's a, a combination of circumstances that sparks that sinful response, and in the moment, we're like, I don't know how this happened. In those cases, it's as simple as saying, okay, you can't do this, and then start thinking about why I'm doing this, maybe a little bit later instead of right that second. This whole person pursuit becomes so automated 
that the motivating beliefs, desires, and commitments of a person fade into lesser and lesser consciousness. People become less free in the discrete or specific choice in a particular instance to get drunk or commit some other sin. They are no less responsible because of it. The more that we sin in a particular way, the easier it becomes such that it almost seems like I couldn't do anything else because that's the way God made habits to work. But there's also freedom. We can change those things. And some of that has to do, as we'll talk in future chapters, with putting roadblocks in the way of those sins. But far more importantly is the fundamental fact that we can't deal with sin on our own. We'll talk about that here at the end of this section. The habits people form in their self-worship make them less aware of the beliefs, values, and commitments that lead them in the direction of a particular idol. Just like alcoholics are often aware of why they desire alcohol so much, so are people obsessed with checking social media or eating late at night or playing video games for hours a day. The idol has become a fixation, and people become less aware of what they think the idol is doing for them. In the beginning, we have a little bit clearer sense of why we're doing the thing. But then later on, it becomes such a part of our life that we don't even think about it anymore. We just do it. It's just part of our lives. And we could add many things to that list. It's not just those three things he mentioned. It could be watching TV. It could be spending time with friends. It could be having a particular attitude of how we want people to view us. But the problem is that we are not ultimately worshiping God in those things. The second point he makes about idolatry is that the heart's functions take on the idol's characteristics. The human heart is dulled, stupefied, made lifeless, and made dumb in its spiritual capacities. We saw this in Romans 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools. When we worship things that are less than God, we do not become more like God. We become more and more blind, spiritually speaking. When people worship idols, their eyes and ears, as figurative of a spiritual perception, simply do not work accurately. It gives a couple quotes from the Psalms there. So, this is something else to consider. When we substitute something in God's place, we do not become the more that Satan offered Eve. We become less. Think about it. If you go from worshiping God who made everything to worshiping bugs that crawl upon the ground, are you better or worse off for having made that exchange? Clearly worse. But that's what happens with sin. And we don't even realize that it's worse is the, is the dangerous thing. Another quote, people look for figures that capture an ideal they are looking for and their hearts are shaped to function like those figures. There's a powerful role of examples in which we see someone who has the things that we think that we want in life and so then we pattern our lives after those people because we think then we will have those same things. Of course, idolatry is a two-directional interplay. People search for idols that promise the things they want, but their wants are also shaped by those idols. Before people know it, their spiritual capacities do not rise much further than the music they listen to, the shows they follow, and the conversations they have. And lest we think that we are immune to this, think back over the last week and think about the ways that you have spent your time and the things that you have talked about with people. This is not a statement that's saying if you turn on your TV at all, you hate God and you should consider yourself no longer a member of the church. This is a statement of saying all of us struggle with putting things in the place of God. And so we have to constantly bring that to our awareness. 
One of the ways people keep themselves from facing the harsh, re harsh reality they are being controlled by idols is by idol hopping. What sports promise people in their teenage years, their careers promise in their 30s. What one relationship promises, another tries to provide when the first one fails. There is a danger in thinking that when it comes to sin, I'm better off if I am no longer doing this sin, but it's okay that I'm doing this sin because that sin is more acceptable. Maybe at some point in your life you're like, you know what? I lived in a way that was adultery or immorality or something like that. I don't live that way anymore, but now I live judgmentally and hypocritically and with gossip and slander. But that's more okay because people usually don't get kicked out of churches for those things, at least right away, where they would for these things. So because I've exchanged this sin for the other one, I'm better off. If we're still enslaved to a sinful habit, we're not better off. If we exchange the idol of, I'm going to be the next Michael Jordan, or the next, I don't know any good baseball players, so I'm not going to keep going on that line. The next whatever in terms of sports, and then we're like, no, nah, uh, there's no way that's going to happen. But now we're like, you know what? I will be happy if I blank and fill in the thing that consumes your time. Then we are still not in a better spot. We still have not said God. God is more important than all of these things. God made people to image His glory, but people have exchanged this glory for a lesser one. This exchange is the central tragedy of the universe. Fortunately, God designed another exchange. There is a promise of restoration as Jesus, who perfectly embodied the dynamic human heart, exchanged His perfection for human sin. God thus interrupts the deadening cycle of idolatry. It is the gospel. And that's what the next chapter is about the effects that the gospel has on helping to free us from the ongoing and complicated corruption of sin. But before we get to the hope of the gospel, we have to realize how bad off we are, how quickly our hearts are corrupted toward sin, toward idolatry, toward things away from God, and how that does not make us better, as Satan promised. It makes us worse, like the Egyptians who are crawling on the ground, worshiping, slithering, and hopping things but that's not just a reality for long ago my life is consumed by the shows that I watch if my life is absorbed in the hobbies that I pursue if my life is defined by the successes I have in my job rather than my life being directed toward asking what honors God, what worships God, what reflects God's character to the people around me, then we have as much a problem of idolatry as the Egyptians did. The difference is, as believers, if we're on the other side of the next chapter that we've accepted Christ, we have God's power to help us to continue to change from those things. Let's pray. Lord, Think of the, the words of the song where it says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here is my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Um, we are prone to wander. We are liable to run back to the things that we should see the emptiness of. Proverbs div describes sin as a, saw, as a hog wallowing 
in its own waste as a dog going back and licking up its own vomit. We tend to see sin as eating the last piece of cake that's maybe been on the counter for a little bit too long. Lord, help us to see sin as you see it, to see it as corruption, to see it as pollution, to see it as permeating the entirety of our being, and the only thing that will help us with that is if in your grace you root it out from us. Help us to trust you, follow you, continue to participate in that process as your people in Christ's name. Amen.